Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Hannah Raskin, who is with the Post and Courier, the food editor there. And from the studios of Taproot Audio in Oxford, Mississippi, Melissa Hall with Southern Foodways. And we're going to discuss the state of Southern food in 2019. Let's start off for our listeners. Where do you think Southern cooking, Southern food, foodways, tastes are today? Hannah, let's start with you. Sure. I think there continues to be a tremendous excitement about Southern food, but like food everywhere in our country, it's consistently evolving um, based on a lot of people who are moving into the South, um, which is exciting. So I think it's expanding in new ways. Okay. And Melissa, what about you? I would echo what Hannah said. I mean, I would say the state of Southern food is strong, and it is strong um, because it is not a cuisine that we have packed away in in gauze and set in a museum to look at and have it remain static. Instead, it's a cuisine that changes with each year and with each Southerner who puts her hands on the ingredients and the final dishes. It is evolving, and I will say, having grown up in the South, on the Gulf Coast, with the typical midday meal in the 1940s and 1950s, basically was a meat in three, with a starch, always rice, usually rice and gravy. Uh, Could be fried chicken. On Fridays, we weren't Catholic, but in Mobile, big Catholic town, we always had seafood, usually fried fish. I'm coming, everything's fried. You know, except for the roast beef, which was cooked to death, sadly. <laughs> and long time before you all may have ever gotten to Charleston, there were only two restaurants in Charleston in the 1960s. The high end was Perdita's. That was it, two restaurants. And Hannah, how many restaurants are there in Charleston now? There are hundreds, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. So the count varies, of course, depending where you draw lines, but it's safe to say there's 600-something restaurants in Charleston. Wow. And as Southern food evolves, every now and then you run into a curmudgeon or they would call themselves a traditionalist. And I'm thinking about Rick Bragg now, whose book, The Best Cook in the World, about his mother's cooking. About Uh, his mama's cooking. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Um, Bemoaned the fact that that old-fashioned Southern cooking, as he defines it, it's very rare these days. Melissa? Well, out of a great deal of respect uh, for Mr. Bragg, I I would disagree. I think that there are meat and threes and soul food places um, across the region who are serving um, what, you know, what Mr. Bragg would would recognize, what his mother would recognize, what you're describing from the 40s and 50s and 60s as uh, sort of the traditional meat meat and three or the traditional soul, soul food meal. But I would also say, in addition to those places, um, there are places like Tuk Tuk Sri Lankan Bites, which is a food truck in Lexington, Kentucky, um, serving one of the best fried chickens in the region right now, um, where the chef Sam Four is spicing that chicken with spices and ingredients that are recognizable to her as a southerner of Sri Lankan descent and are recognizable to us as really fine fried chicken. The greens at a place like Taqueria del Sol, where Eddie Hernandez is spicing those greens um, the way he learned how to in Colombia, where he grew up before adopting the South as his home. So, you know, and, and that doesn't even mention, I mean, to, you know, in, in Charleston, when you think about places like Bertha's and Martha Lou's and others, you know, restaurants like that, I think, are hanging on, are doing well across the region. And then sort of the next generation that takes that meat and three ideal and makes it their own. There are a lot of those. And I I think, you know, that's that's what I find exciting about the cuisine right now. I have to say about Rick Bragg and 
his mother's cooking, even if you go to some traditional meat and threes today, and I can think of several places uh, in South Carolina, they're not using fresh vegetables. Oh, I thought you were saying they're not meat and threes because they're usually meat and twos. That's been the big evolution. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, there's a restaurant here in Columbia where you you can have a one, two, three, or four. Ah, uh, right. Perfect. Or nice. even a complete veggie plate. Right, right, right. But I, 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 would, I would push back on the idea that they're not using fresh vegetables. It is true there are many delicious places where you will see plenty of cans. You'll see the Cisco truck out front. But there are also places that, at least in Charleston, are on the delivery route for our for our farmer, you know, for our produce distributor. So I, I wouldn't say they're they're not all using fresh no, vegetables. Well, I, I don't say all, but, okay. but there's some that advertise it and... When you get the turnip greens, you know that they are canned. Sure. So, <laughs> um, but talking about about changing things, I'm the collard cook in our family, and I think about how they used to be cooked. They're still cooked very, very well, but I cook mine with Conecuh County sausage from Alabama. Delicious. Not mm-hmm. just not just throwing a piece of ham in there, and I put lots of sausage in mine, which makes a delicious pot liquor. Yeah. I was with Martha Hawkins of Martha's Place in Montgomery, Alabama, actually just on Monday, and her collard greens, um, she has been probably, she said, for the past 10 or 20 years, she makes them entirely with smoked turkey which she does as a nod to sort of the health needs of her customers. And that idea you introduced earlier about sort of that, that sort of big noon meal, that's certainly the way my, my mother, my grandparents um, grew up eating. And, and this was in the, the Appalachian Mountains in eastern Kentucky. And there are right now actually two, I think, really phenomenally good books, one by Kiese Lehman, a book called Heavy, and another by Tommy Tomlinson, who's based in Charlotte, a book called The Elephant in the Room. And what both of those books deal with in different ways is how do we sort of as modern Southerners um, kind of reconcile our relatively sedentary lifestyle with that tradition of the meat and three and, you know, the big breakfast and the big lunch. And, you know, when we're not doing a day's worth of hard labor, but are instead um, sitting at desks and typing on computers all day. So, I mean, I think that's, you know, I I also think that's a really interesting sort of conversation right now is as the South changes, as Southerners change, you know, how do we still enjoy these foods and and stay healthy? Well, that's that's a really good question. And in terms of the meal in the middle of the day for the last 40 years here in Columbia, South Carolina, except on Sunday for Sunday dinner, it's lunch, which until I retired from the university was always on the go. I had a sandwich and not much else, and then back to the classroom. It was not what I grew up with, or most people, older people, my generation, and I'm 75, grew up with anywhere in the South, regardless of their social status. It was The big meal was the middle of the day. That's changed, and although our evening meal uh, is the big meal, it's certainly not as heavy. My wife is big on salads. <laughs> Great. So you, you mentioned the the title, The Elephant in the Room. You want to go mm-hmm. with, with that, more about that cookbook? Yeah, so it's it's not a cookbook. It's a, it's a memoir. And um, what uh, Tom, Tommy Tomlinson is a writer, uh, most people might recognize his work from ESPN's magazine or um, website because he, he does a fair amount of sports writing. But he has, um, you know, he's had a lifelong battle with his weight. And once he sort of started taking apart the hows and whys of that, you know, he acknowledged some larger um, societal issues and issues that really have to do more with 
the South's changing relationship with labor that happened faster than our relationship with food changed. So I I can't say enough nice things about the book. And I, I he's on a book tour right now. So um, as is K.S.A. Lehman. So both of them are likely to be in in your neighborhood talking about their books directly. Having grown up on the Gulf Coast, I was, I'm used to spicy food, although I must say everybody in their cooking today wants to make it as hot as possible, burn your tongue, and that's creeping into Southern cuisine. Maybe that's good or maybe it's not. I just grew up, if you want a little bit, of, you know, we had some Texas peat on the table, and you put a little bit, if you wanted it hotter, you just didn't present it to somebody that was full of red-hot chili peppers. Right. I think the the nation's palate is certainly becoming um, more tolerant of all kinds of heat. And I think here in the South, you know, we do have small farmers, certainly some of these folks who are, you might meet at the farmer's market, who are experimenting with more of these, you know, these, the hot horseradish and the wasabis. And, and so there are more ingredients, again, being added um, to our larder that, that we can work with. And I would argue that that Southerners have always had a taste for spicy. I mean, when you think about something as basic as deviled eggs um, and as and as basic to our table, I mean, part part of the appeal of the deviled egg is that, you know, that bite from the mustard. And I, um, I oh, so sorry, Melissa. Yeah. No, no, go ahead. I was going to argue, too, if, if there is more of an interest in spice in the South, I wouldn't be surprised as well if that has to do with liquor with, by the drink and all of the, you know, there's more public drinking than there was 40 years ago. If you drink something, exactly. if you eat something spicy, <laughs> you want to have a beer. And there used to be dry county. So I'm going to go on a limb and say that the, the embrace of alcohol in the South is why we're getting spicier. Well, I, I think... <laughs> <laughs> Look, I used to be the one who picked the crab down at Edisto in Garden City. Well, they sat me on the dock with the bucket of crabs and a six-pack of beer. Nothing go. to do with spice, but... Uh, but you put some... I mean, a, but a deviled crab is a delicious thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> I love the deviled eggs example. In fact, uh, you can get them in places in South Carolina where they do put crab in their deviled mm-hmm. eggs or shrimp in their deviled eggs, and it's absolutely out of this world. But it's not something that would have appeared in Charleston receipts. Not well, with the addition, no. All right. We need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I have Hannah Raskin from The Post and Courier and Melissa Hall with the Southern Foodways Alliance, and she's on the line from Oxford, Mississippi. Southern cookbooks as Southern cookbooks, and I'm not counting the very, the junior league or the church cookbooks, which have been around since the 30s. You know, 20 years ago, John Martin Taylor came out with Hoppin' John, and it became something of a sensation outside the South. Southern cookbooks by, by professionals, it's probably just within the last 25 years, Oh, longer than that. I mean, here in South Carolina, if you think about Natalie Dupree was on PBS going back to the 80s, showing people how to... Now, when did she was on PBS? Mm-hmm. 25 years ago? She was earlier than that. I can I can look it yeah, up. And... Yeah, much earlier. And I would say even before her was Justin Wilson. Right. I, um, yeah, I wasn't was... sure. If I had to... <laughs> yeah. That's a whole other thing, but... Yeah, it kind of is, but yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so so what, what, you're, what you're saying is the professionalization of Southern cooking was taking place when? 1970s? I would say the 1980s. 1980s? Okay. That. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's when yeah. Bill Neal puts his book out. Um, I would say the 1980s. Okay. I think before that, most Southern cookbooks had to include canned mushroom soup. <laughs> for All the, cookbooks. For, for the casserole. <laughs> mm-hmm. But hey, those casserole. If you if you go to a homecoming at a Southern church today, That's you're right. still going to find Jello salads. Yep. Or Coca Cola salad, even better. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's what I was going to say when you were concerned about the state of what we're calling traditional Southern cuisine is it's very easy to think it's missing if you're just flying into the airports because a meat and three is not the perfect thing to, to put near your, your exit gate. But if you go to a dinner on the ground, I mean, all of this food is still being cooked. I think it just depends where you look. I just want to be clear that um, that's not Southern food. Um, Thank you. That's like some that's some 1950s and 1960s consumer yeah. science stuff that was happening all and still is happening all over the country. Right. Um, my mother never met a 
tub of sour cream and box of hamburger helper that she wasn't willing to at least give a try. And it's because the the promise of the promise of that grocery store experience for women who were entering the workforce and still expected to put food on the table that was a glorious and massive promise. And um, that's, you know, the South ends up getting, I think, sometimes unfairly tagged with that experience. But that that one wasn't just ours. But then there's that wonderful little book that came out of Mississippi called Being Dead is No Excuse, where, <laughs> where the food brought to a home uh, in the time of death, they knew what Episcopalians brought what the Methodists brought, what the Baptists. It's really interesting the way funeral food has evolved, that now many funeral homes, at least here in South Carolina, do offer catering services because that is no longer a, a, I was going to say a living tradition. That's a terrible choice of words in this context. But that is <laughs> <laughs> that is no longer practiced in many families and in some communities. Well, I mean, you could count on fried chicken, potato salad, and yes, we can talk about the casseroles. I don't, but I don't think certainly in the last twenty years going anywhere that somebody brought the green bean casserole, or, or heaven forbid, tuna and green peas and mushroom soup. But what you do see is somebody will go to the local deli and get bring a deli tray now, and some of the better places here in Columbia, the high end grocery stores, you can get really good deviled eggs, and you get. Two dozen deviled eggs. That's a traditional food, but it's no longer made in the uh, in the kitchen. And part of that is again, women in the workforce, and there's not a lot of help in the kitchen the way there once was. Right. We are now paying people for their labor. So it was. I mean, it used to be that that help in the kitchen was something that middle class could afford. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the hardest things. Mm-hmm to do, and Natalie has said this, particularly to do with meat, is to find the right ingredients. You know, her big complaint is getting chicken that hasn't been blown up to look like Mae West. And my wife complains about trying to get a real ham to cook the old-fashioned way to score it with cloves Mm -hmm. uh, and brown sugar. And I would say, I mean, that's one of the just kind of a a couple different thoughts. The first is on that sort of history of Southern food. I think that um, for um, a a chunk of this Southern food renaissance, or or I think the phrase you used was the sort of the professionalization of uh, the Southern kitchen, I think we actually owe a little bit of a debt to Craig Claiborne. Mm -hmm. Um, As when he was the food critic for the New York Times, you know, he's a native of Sunflower, Mississippi. He was a great proponent of Southern food. He wrote, I think, at some time in the early 70s, something along the lines of that Southern cuisine was really the country's only native cuisine. And he was a huge advocate of New Orleans and New Orleans restaurants. And so I think it's 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 always interesting the ways in which, I mean, as a Southerner, I don't really like it when people living outside the South start trying to define the region. But I will say it's often helpful when voices with big megaphones, um, as he had particularly in the in the 70s, use it to talk about what's what's good in this region. And uh, so, you know, we we kind of have to say thank you for that. And I would say, too, there were all sorts of commercial cues about Southern food at the right. same time. It's not something that, that the rest of the country was unaware of. And I'm thinking of, you know, um, Loretta Lynn selling Crisco or Kentucky Fried Chicken right. at the time. I mean, there were these ideas about what was happening uh, happening mm-hmm. here. Krispy Kreme. Don't forget Krispy Kreme donuts. Well, they hadn't left the South at that point. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they, they, they eventually did. Out and of, they out did. Out in L.A. had a yep. big opening of the store out oh, there. Oh, yes. Since both both of you folks travel around a lot, when restaurants in Chicago or L.A. or San Francisco talk about Southern cooking, there are some places who advertise themselves as Southern cooking. Have you had a chance to sample that or get reviews of that? Is it the old way or is it the new Southern cooking that uh, Melissa talked about before, the ingredients, but they're 
cooked or presented in a different fashion. Melissa, have you been to June Baby? Um, I haven't, Neither but have I. Uh, I have looked at the I have looked at the menu with a great deal of envy. Yes. So currently, the <laughs> the the restaurant that is probably considered the most important interpreter of Southern food at this moment is located in Seattle. So there is there are things happening outside of this well, region. Well, I was there too. What is it? I think I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> it's Eduardo Jordan's restaurant. Um, have you have you looked at the menu recently, Melissa? I don't want to speak out of turn. No, I haven't. Not, you know, not in advance of this conversation. Right, exactly. I think some of what Chef Eduardo uh, Jordan is doing in Seattle is looking at some of the, you know, the influences on Southern food, unpacking the obvious, you know, uh, West African influence. And as far as I can tell from everyone I've spoken to who's eaten there, really honoring um, what Southern food is about. And in the dish, in addition to June Baby in Seattle, I mean there are places in Chicago. There is a restaurant um, called Big Jones, um, where the chef um, Paul Fairbach is. You know his his interest in real in Southern food actually comes from trying to understand kind of the I don't know the uh, the original or you know, as my children would say, the OG Southern food ingredients. And in in as much as uh, he can get his hands on on those ingredients and see what he can make now. And then, you know, inside the region, there are people like Robert Stelling at Hominy Grill or Mashama Bailey at the Gray or Cassidy Dabney at the barn at Blackberry Farm, who what they do day in, day out is the sort of the elevation of Southern ingredients and and the Southern meal. Hannah, I know I'm leaving people out. And I, I hate know. That. I'm trying to think who we ought to be talking about. It's, it's always... The South is a small place, and it's tricky for us to play favorites, I think. <laughs> well, well what, what, what I'm hearing is that the chains are not driving out good Southern restaurants. Oh, gosh, no. No. No, not no, at all. Not at all. Um, I mean, and, and I think part of the, that reason is because, I mean, the, the reality is the sort of the, the 70s and 80s chain restaurant boom has kind of uh, has kind of hit its bubble, and so I saw a, a thing the other day um, of the top sort of fifteen chain restaurants mm-hmm. closing stores in I think it was in twenty eighteen, or maybe it was sort of a, a hybrid of 2018, 2019. You know, Applebee's, TGI Friday, Ruby Tuesdays, IHOP, um, Subway, like those places are all in. In that list, they're, and yeah, they're so, all in trouble. All yeah, in trouble. so I think that you know, I think there are ways in which so, Southern food has kind of has kind of weathered that storm. And and I'll also say it's a storm of our own creation. I mean, I I can tell you almost to the day when uh, Middlesbrough, Kentucky, which is where I grew up, got a McDonald's because I was 16 years old and we were beside ourselves because getting chain restaurants in our tiny town meant that we were a real town. And, you know, that sort of 16-year-old giddiness, I think, is an experience that replayed itself across communities all around the South. And here we are, 30, 40 years later and saying, eh, is that really what I want to eat? And luckily, you know, with with Southern food, it, you know, it's it's not as though it disappeared or evaporated while we were all having our heads heads turned by, you know, mediocre French fries and ice cream cones. Well, and, and of course, the best restaurants don't turn into chains, although occasionally you have in South Carolina, we've had some that have morphed in a Charleston restaurant will have a footprint here in Columbia or in or in Greenville, but it doesn't become it doesn't franchise itself because running a good restaurant is hard. Yeah, chains are great at that. 
Are chains are really like I, I'll, I'll always stick up for a chain. Actually, I did. Uh, yeah, me too. Yeah, I mean, there's some really important um, community value in chains. Surprisingly, um, you know, they are great employers. They are really diverse dining spaces. They are affordable and offer something really important. I mean, I think the reason Melissa and I are interested in food is we believe in coming together around a table. And chains, because of their size, can keep that table, you know, within financial reach for a lot of people who might not be able to eat out otherwise. And there are chains now who are, in addition to doing all of the things that Hannah said, are also really paying attention to what's happening in their kitchens. That's absolutely um, right. I mean, just if you're going to you know, affect change in the food system, it's going to come from those guys. And some of them are doing it. And maybe, Melissa, you want to give an example? Um, I would say probably the, the best example I know of is uh, Jim and Nick's. They are, I will say, donors to the Southern Foodways Alliance. So, you know, just to be clear, but because of that relationship, I know a fair amount about how they run their restaurants. And, you know, they don't have freezers at Jim and Nick's. Everyone who cooks at a Jim and Nick's is learning how to cook a thing because they are, you know, they're producing their barbecue every day and they are producing all of those sides every day in the restaurant. And um, Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and they don't, they cannot escape scrutiny. So employees know that these are places um, that are more inclined to follow the law. And we've talked about some of the troubles in kitchens recently. I'm not saying that doesn't happen in chains. There have been some, you know, serious reports about harassment in fast food restaurants. But in terms of discriminatory hiring practices and so on, um, these chains tend to be policed more than a mom and pop. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm mishearing, but are the better Southern restaurants more upscale? So it's, well, like, take how many grill? I mean, mm-hmm. it's not that expensive, but it is. It's it, not cheap. It's not mm-hmm. cheap. Even Warmouth here in Columbia, which is a favorite of mine, is more expensive than going to the local burger joint. Sure. I I would say, I mean, I think the other thing that's happening with chefs across the region, especially those who are kind of creating little restaurant empires, is that they are getting really interested in things like a really good piece of fried chicken or a really good burger. So I think about somebody like Ashley Christensen in Raleigh, North Carolina, who, you know, I don't know, I've lost count, probably has five or six restaurants now. Her first restaurant, Pools, is a traditional sort of white tablecloth, um, relatively high-dollar dining experience. But she's also opened a place called Chuck's, which is focused entirely on burgers, and a place called Beasley's Honey and Chicken, which is focused entirely on, like I said, really good pieces of fried chicken. And we're, we're starting to see that sort of around the region, that the idea that you're Um, your second restaurant needs to be exactly like your first or needs to sort of push the envelope to be more exclusive or more expensive, that, that idea seems to be going away. And what, what really good chefs seem to be getting interested in is this idea that they can, they can make the best version of a thing that people really like to eat, which I think is super exciting. Need to pause again to let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Melissa Hall of the Southern Foodways Alliance and with Hannah Raskin from the Post and Courier. Burgers, pimento burgers, which John T. Ed said originated here in Columbia, South Carolina, at the old dairy bar south on South Main Street. And you can get pimento burgers here in Columbia at various places. And that is actually kind of spread around the South. So if I if I were in Oxford, Melissa, could I get a good pimento burger? You could, you could, because they're everywhere now. Um, I saw one on a menu in Montgomery, Alabama, this weekend. I've seen them on menus in Tennessee. So, and let me say, like, yay, because that's delicious. And I'm grateful to Columbia for starting that trend, but um, there's no reason that needed to stay within the, the city limits. Oh, I, I, um, I, as <laughs> no, I'm, just, I'm just glad to know that there's, you know, there's, there's another place. I don't think there's one in Mobile because I've looked, but... Um. <laughs> <laughs> Everything there is fried seafood for the most part. You know, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, 
But well, you need to go then if you're if if uh, if you want a different mobile dining experience, I would suggest going to the National which is brand new and is focused on a different mobile dining experience. So try that out next time you're visiting. I I, I will, although I will certainly not take Felix's Fish Camp off my list of restaurants. You shouldn't. No, you should not. You should not. (laughs) Uh, Because you can get very nice broiled as opposed to fried seafood if you so choose. Over the years, I've watched that menu change as less fried and more salads, that kind of that kind of thing. So that's an evolution of a very traditional Southern restaurant. Yeah, I think the other sort of um, uh, super intriguing Southern food thing, at least from f- as you know, as I think about the region, is um, this this little nugget, and that is that. A whole bunch of the folks in the South right now um, who are starting to open barbecue restaurants or that their barbecue restaurants are starting to be talked about in both a regional and a national conversation is how young these people are. Brian Furman at Bee's Cracklin Barbecue in Georgia, Rodney Scott in South Carolina, Sam Jones in North Carolina, Pat Martin in Tennessee, Miguel and Modesty Vidal in Texas. All of those are barbecue pitmasters who are under 50, which means that we don't yet know what the future of barbecue can be in this region because the folks who are making a name for themselves in barbecue right now are not the folks I think you traditionally think of. Your parents or grandparents who are, you know, cooking a hog sometimes and it's kind of only with their friends. It's, it's, there's youth and, and uh, I think vigor and new ideas and all of that just in this very traditional food. When you talk about barbecue anywhere in the South, but particularly in South Carolina, you press a lot of hot buttons. And (laughs) I was reading a, a recent article in the New York Times about restaurant in Atlanta, which was offering chicken wings with Alabama-style white barbecue sauce. Now, I know that comes from northern Alabama, and you mentioned that to most people, barbecue aficionados here in South Carolina, and they kind of put their hand over their mouth and go, yeah. (laughs) Every time someone says food brings people together, I remind them of barbecue, because it does not. Everyone's got to fight about it. Actually, it was about 30 years ago when Professor Charles Kovacic here at the University of South Carolina geographer published a barbecue map that was in the New York Times. And before Chuck retired about 10 years ago, uh, he did another one. And the various regions in South Carolina have shifted, have changed. And mm-hmm. much to the chagrin of some folks, the mustard base has expanded, but it's pushed out into Georgia, that ketchup-based, which that's about where it belongs. It belongs in Georgia. It doesn't belong. <laughs> so, um, you know, and then you, then you go to Wilmington, they talk about their North Carolina barbecue, the uh, pepper and vinegar. Well, I'm sorry, folks, it originated in the PD, and then like everything else good, it, got, it seeped across the, across the state line. <laughs> well, it sounds to me like Southern cuisine is thriving, the state of the, the state of southern cuisine is very bright. I think so. I don't think there's any real reason to worry. I do think it's interesting. I think we're Samuelis. I'd be curious what you how you feel about this, but it does seem like at some of the higher end restaurants, they are backing away a little bit from the traditional, you know, canonical southern dishes. We are seeing so many French restaurants right now. Um, Europe is having a moment in the South. I would say at, at upscale restaurants. Um, Which is great. I mean, and partly that's because, you know, we have a lot of caring farmers who are growing ingredients that can support, you know, a kind of a classical tradition like that. Part of it, I think, is um, as chefs wade further and further into Southern food, they realize all the debates and politics that go with it. And I think they'd rather just cook a souffle. You want to elaborate? <laughs> Do you want to elaborate on that? Sure. I mean, I think um, I alluded earlier to you know obviously the African influences on Southern cuisine and Southern food would not exist um, without 
the you know the ingredients, the know-how, all of which came from Africa uh, and the enslaved people. I'm sorry, people. not not all of them. Well, no, of course, there are Native American traditions as well. Y- y- yes, I yes, yes, I'm uh, sorry. Uh, you know, in in South Carolina, mm-hmm. uh, what evolved into regional cuisine yep. was a melange of correct. We had. French. Oh, no, that's yeah, yeah. that's the great part of Southern foods. It brings all that together. But what I was saying is that as we know it would not exist without that component. It's a oh, huge oh, component. Oh, oh, well, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> the deep fat frying of meat, uh, the cooking of vegetables with a piece of meat, those things are absolutely essential, and they, and they come from West Africa. Exactly. So I'm not saying this solely from, because clearly, if you took a West African dish and you took a Southern dish that people from both regions would recognize as traditional, they're two different dishes. I'm not saying that Southern food is African food, but I think it's a it's an important component. And so, anyways, I think as chefs think about all the influences we just mentioned, they realize that they have to pay homage in this way or that. They have to be careful about what's, you know, what they're doing um, respectfully and what might look like appropriation. These are actual debates that are happening in kitchens. Well, then I guess we can't cook a meal in South Carolina. Well, no, (laughs) I didn't say that. No. no. I I at no point said that you shouldn't be able to cook from another culture. I think that is one of the ways we get to know one another. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is there's more to reckon with. That's all. Well, I'm just trying to understand what what a problem is for cooking something from a West African recipe. Why, how is that a problem for a chef? I, I, I'm sorry. I'm, Take it th- away. This is Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, or at least what... what and <laughs> Actually, let me start this way. To say this discussion is kind of, I think, exactly what Hannah was talking about exactly. um, when she introduced this, this topic. There is nothing wrong with cooking a West African recipe the problem comes, I think, and this is particularly a restaurant problem. The problem comes when you take that recipe and you begin to describe it on a menu. That's right. And you start um, explaining what the influences are for this recipe. And that, I think, is where the tension comes um, because it is, you know, when when you are telling a story sort of as big as Southern food and a story that historically has ignored in telling its story the contributions of uh, enslaved Africans, the contributions of women in the last probably 40 years, the contributions of gay and lesbian chefs in the kitchen and the contributions of Hispanic workers in the kitchen. When, when you are telling a story that big and you know that there are people who have been left out over and over and over again in the telling of the story, I think that then telling that story in, on a menu, um, telling that story as you create sort of the, I don't know, the mystique and the aura around your restaurant um, does become complicated. And I think Melissa is exactly right to zero in on the restaurant context because what we're talking about now is money changing hands. And when you create an economy around a dish and you have the opportunity for chefs to get rich off of a dish, it becomes significant in a different way than what you serve when your grandmother comes over. Well, I guess what I'm having been in Hominy Grill, New Orleans Best Restaurants, I don't see people but describing the background of the recipe or the chefs, and that they might the chef's name might be mentioned, but they sh- they say shrimp and grits. They don't say where it got appropriated or. <laughs> no, I've yet to see the menu that says, here's where I appropriated this from, although I would love to get a copy if anyone ever sees one. <laughs> but, what, what, um, but I think what Melissa... Hannah, you and I could maybe do some rewriting. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Look for Hannah and Melissa's well, you know, menu I, book. Well, <laughs> maybe if somebody just advertises Southern, cuisine, Southern cooking, some people may see that as a, as a problem because a lot of folks do not identify African-Americans as Southern. Right. So I think this is what I'm saying. This is clearly this has opened up a whole can of worms and that's just us talking about it. So imagine if we were serving it and reporters were coming to eat it. So, again, I think that's why some chefs are just making beef tartare. 
So <laughs> <laughs> both of you have mentioned the farm-to-table movement, which is it's national, but it's been especially noticeable here in, in, in the South. You know, Geechee Boy in Edisto Island, who supplies foodstuffs for some of the better Charleston restaurants. And Melissa, that seems to be a re- it's it certainly has happened across the region, right? Oh uh, yes, I mean I, I I like to say to quote a fairly old country song um, that, or to actually to misquote it, which is um, I was country when country wasn't cool. You know, I think that one of the things that's happening to the South is the South was farm to table um, when farm to table wasn't cool. And they were farm to table. I mean, if if you start to dig into the backstories of a lot of the chefs cooking in the region, kind of at all levels, you know, what, what they tell you is a story of cooking at home and cooking at home with access to farm fresh ingredients, whether it was coming from their family or a farmer's market or, you know, whatever. And so I think for for a lot of the, the folks cooking Southern food right now, I think having access to farmers and and farm farm fresh ingredients and you know Anson Mills rice and 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 all of those things makes some kind of sense to them and a sense to them that doesn't really have to do necessarily with their culinary training but has to do with the level of ingredient they grew up expecting sort of to work with actually that's one of the backstories with Rick Bragg's about his mother's cooking is she basically made do with whatever was at hand, um, which a, a lot of traditional Southern dishes have been the, I mean, that's what they had to do. Right. But I think that's too, what Melissa of, was yeah. getting at too, is yeah, it's, it's, some of that was not necessarily at hand. Um, if you, yes, if you're in an agricultural community, maybe you had access for that. But one of the exciting things, at least here in South Carolina, about that whole farm to table movement, as they called it, was the development you know, in Charleston of Grow Food, which is a food hub connecting small farmers with these expensive restaurants. That didn't used to happen. You know, It used to be that if you were a chef, you didn't have time to go to a farm. Um, so they, these networks we have, that are making those connections, that's been one of the most exciting outgrowths of of the whole movement. Well, just as a historical note, one of the first shows that the Journal did almost 20 years ago was with Anson Mills. Mm -hmm. And they were just getting off the ground. So just toss out that historic tidbit. (laughs) And of course, now you can get their products in Rome, not Georgia. (laughs) <laughs> Rome, right. Italy. That's right. A- actually see it on the menu. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so where are we now? 21st century. Uh, I'm hearing lots of good things about Southern food. I'm also hearing a changing definition of what Southern food is. Hannah? Well, I I don't know how much the definition has changed. I mean, food is very much defined by the people who make it and consume it. So I think if there's any change, it's because the people of the South are changing. And South Carolina, in some ways more than most, I can tell you in my role as an editor, a food editor at the Post and Courier, I get to engage with readers on a very regular basis. And it has been striking to me just over the last five years how many more emails I receive begin with, I just moved here from New York, and I, everyone. And so are we in, Are we seeing more pizza? Are we seeing more, you know, Americanized Chinese food? Yep, because more and more Northerners are settling on the coast of South Carolina. Well, if you drive through rural South Carolina, it is not unusual in a place like King Street that there are two Chinese restaurants. Right. Right. I, 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 yeah. I mean, the Chinese restaurants, and this goes back to what you were saying about um, the meat and three, is that sometimes I think we see it in a different guise. And actually, John T. Edge, the director of Southern Food Ways Alliance, and I were just having a discussion about how many of these Chinese takeouts in South Carolina are serving what might have been a meat and three. You go to these places and you get fried chicken in the form of wings and you get white rice. And it's the same thing you might have gotten in a in a meat and three or meat and two, but it's a Chinese restaurant. And so I think I think we're seeing much of the same food just presented differently. Melissa? Yeah, and I think following up on 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 Hannah's thought, you know, 
I think a, a good example um, is uh, Johnny's in Homewood, Alabama. Tim Hansis, who runs that restaurant, came from this uh, this Greek restaurant family, uh, Greek immigrants in Birmingham and in Jackson, Mississippi, sort of started the restaurant industry in both of those communities and and ran places, many of, of which are still in business today. You know, when I think about uh I think about what he's doing in that restaurant and, you know, for his grandparents and folks of their generation, you know, what they were serving in Birmingham and in Jackson and, you know, kind of all over this, this, this little section of the deep South had to have seemed so exotic at the time. And, you know, and when you were going out, when you were going to eat in one of those places, it was, you know, it had to have uh, sort of felt like an adventure. And, you know, what Tim is doing as now a fourth, fifth generation um, Southerner who is, um, who trained at sort of white tablecloth restaurants is to sort of take what what he does is at his restaurant is kind of a hybrid of the Greek restaurant of the of the forties, fifties, and sixties, and a meat and three, and the result is really extraordinarily beautiful. And what everybody. W- who stands in his line um, every day at lunch to have his meat and three fully recognizes his Southern food. And, you know, I think that with time, as Hannah mentioned, you're seeing the beginnings of it with something like, you know, Chinese restaurants in the South. But I think, you know, as as more and more people adopt this place as their home, as more and more people choose to be Southerners and bring with them kind of their own um, food memories and food stories, and those stories um, start to sort of mesh with our own. I mean, I, I think the ultimate result is is actually going to be really exciting. And and I may be weird, but you know, I will say I'm 51 years old. When my children at 51 years old are talking about Southern food. I don't really want them to be talking about the same dishes that I loved at at this stage in my life. I think for um, for Southern food to con- to continue to evolve and excite people and be be a cuisine that people want to eat, you know, it, it it's got to change a little bit, and I, I want it to change in ways that all Southerners will embrace. Well, Melissa, looking. You said when your children are 51, that's two generations, 25 years to a generation. What are you hoping that they're going to see on a menu that you don't see now? Oh, goodness. I think that uh, what I hope that they're going to see on menus is, you know, I I love greens and I love green, seeing greens on menus, but um, I you know, I have a particular fondness for those places where I sit down and I see that it's greens and, you know, and they are spiced with traditional Indian spices okay. or they are spiced with traditional South American spices. That's what I hope the Southern plate looks like is, you know, ingredients that we that we all recognize, but with nods to with nods to the hands that made them. And, and I want that not to be just the exception that I could talk about by naming a particular chef in a particular restaurant. Um, I want that to be what most meat and threes look like. Hannah? Well, I mean, if you're talking about what Southern food ought to be a century from now, I sort of feel like if I can envision it, that's not good enough. I mean, I, I, so I right. don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that that's the, yeah, that's the fun part. Folks. Alfred's giving the wind-up sign, and Melissa, since you're in from Oxford, I'll let any last words you'd like to let our listeners know about Southern cooking, Southern cuisine. I think, so, as I've said several times, I think Southern food it, right now is exciting. Um, and I think that if you if you care about food and you find dining out to be one of your favorite forms of entertainment, 
Um, seek out those places that, you know, you've heard about and never quite made it to or maybe tried once and, and weren't sure you'd go back. I would say seek those places out because, you know, it it is super fun to travel places like New York and Chicago and San Francisco or even to Charleston to eat. But chances are somewhere within a 50 to 100 mile radius of wherever you are, um, there's an interesting food experience. And and I think those can be just as valid and just as exciting as the ones that we have to go off to find. Okay. Hannah? Yeah, and I would localize that even further to say that I did a a piece not long ago about the best place to eat at every exit off Interstate 26. And I was so pleasantly surprised by the diversity of places from one end of the state to the other that really formed a portrait of South Carolina. Um, And so I I do feel that's available to to everyone who's in the sound of my voice right now. You may very well be on I-26. And there is just a really exciting dining experience just within miles um, that you may get to try a food you never tried or try a food that you remember from your childhood. It's all over the place, but it's certainly worth seeking out. The only other thing I would add from a local perspective is, unlike Melissa, I, I do live here, and and, and many of the people listening um, are probably readers of the Post and Courier. I would say the discussion about Southern food is ongoing, and I'm always excited to have it, so would encourage people to, to get in touch with me at any time. And we will have your contact information on our awesome. website. Okay. I want to thank Melissa Hall from the Southern Foodways Alliance and Hannah Raskin from the Post and Courier for being with us today on Walter Edgar's Journal. This is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Wow, the state of Southern cuisine today. It's not what I grew up with and maybe not what some of you grew up with. There are still elements that are common, but Southern cuisine has moved into the 21st century with new ingredients and new methods of preparation. As we learn from talking with Hannah Raskin and Melissa Hall, new ingredients, a collision of cultures, and changing methods have been a part of Southern cooking, at least in South Carolina, since 1670. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.